Hello, greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters, and thank you for giving us the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and through the Spirit. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We are a non-denominational church of disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Love to hear your thoughts about what we're talking about today. Please let us know in the comments, and if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and on YouTube. There was a promise that had been made from the days of John the Baptist, that there was going to be one coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit in Luke 3.16. And before his death, Jesus had continually assured and promised his disciples that they would receive the Spirit, or the Comforter, very soon, in John 14 through 16. After his resurrection, Jesus told the disciples that they should remain in Jerusalem because they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not long after. And then, on the day of Pentecost, it happened. The Spirit was poured out on the disciples. All of Jerusalem was in a flutter, trying to figure out what was going on. And Peter stood up among them and declared that this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it will be, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will perform wonders in the sky above and miraculous signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So why was this pouring out of the Spirit such a momentous event? To understand it, we need to understand what made Joel's prophecy so encouraging and hopeful for Israel. Now, generally, when we talk about Joel, he becomes one of the more challenging and frustrating prophets very quickly, because he, we really cannot date with any great confidence, with any great specificity. If you think about most of the prophets, you know, Isaiah says which, which kings he prophesied under. Uh, Ezekiel will let us know down to the date exactly when his prophecies are being made. And even if we don't have a specific date, uh, for instance, uh, in Nahum, uh, we can tell that he's prophesying sometime between the destruction of Thebes in Egypt and the fall of Assyria in the middle of the 7th century. So we have some kind of information normally either explicitly given uh, in terms of a list of kings under which a, a prophet would prophesy or some events that took place that we can pretty clearly and confidently date. But with Joel, it's the closest we have is that he condemns the Phoenicians and those in Philistia for selling Judites to the Greeks in Joel 3, 4 through 8. But theoretically, that could have taken place at any time during the major prophetic period. So we have to say, yeah, Joel prophesied sometime between 750 and 420. Uh, so any time from the days of the kings to the end of uh, the, the Spirit's presence among Israel uh, for a time. But when we're discussing what we're seeing here in Joel 2, 20-32, that lack of specificity can actually be a boon for us because uh, we can see how it might apply in different contexts. Because Joel is speaking of a future time. 
that in the latter days, in the days to come, in the future, this is what's going to happen. Under a Davidic monarchy, during the exile and after the exile, the Second Temple period, this promise would have deep resonance for Israel. And what is the promise? The promise is that Yahweh would pour out his spirit on all kinds of people. And it's men, it's women, it's older men and younger men and older women and younger women, and even slaves. Uh, so there's this radical kind of democratizing of the spirit. Everybody's going to get it. Uh, there'll be these portentous signs in verses 30 and 31 that would demonstrate this transition of authority. A lot of people get uh, all out in a tizzy because of the idea of, you know, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Uh, but when Ezekiel will talk about these kind of things in his oracles, they are about the transition of kingdoms. And that's what Joel is envisioning. And then those who would call on Yahweh would be delivered, that there would be this remnant on Zion and Jerusalem, which whom Yahweh would call as he had promised in verse 32. It's very interesting to see how Peter omits most of that in his quotation. But what makes this so momentous? What makes this so encouraging, uh, either in the days of the kings or during the exile or after the exile? Well, we need to understand uh, how it is encouraging by looking at how uh, Yahweh has maintained his presence and spirit in Israel if we're going to make any sense of it. Now, the Spirit of Yahweh had been intimately involved with the creation of everything. In Genesis 1 and verse 2, he hovered over the waters. We can see throughout the script, Old Testament that the Spirit of Yahweh was with Enoch, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and the prophets whom Yahweh called to himself. They spoke as the Spirit of Yahweh gave them utterance, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. If you're reading any prophetic text, one of the things you see always, and the word of Yahweh came to me saying, or this is the word of Yahweh, it's constantly being repeated over and over again. We have an interesting story about this in Numbers 11, 25 through 29, in the moment where the spirit of Yahweh filled Moses and the elders of Israel, it also filled Eldad and Medad, who prophesied in the camp. And Joshua was concerned about this, wanted uh, Moses to chide them, but Moses refused, and in fact cried out, wishing that all Israelites were filled with the Spirit and able to prophesy. And so, as his words indicate, it's aspirational for Israel to receive the Holy Spirit in this way, that the Spirit was never poured out in any sort of democratized way. And practically, from the days of Moses until Ezra, if you wanted a word from Yahweh, if you wanted to understand what you needed to do, you would seek out a prophet of Yahweh to receive that word. Very much like Saul and his, and his companion uh, seek out Samuel to learn where his father's donkeys had gone in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now, from the days of Ezra until the days of Jesus, if you wanted to understand about Yahweh and his ways, you'd probably seek out a lawyer. Somebody very well versed in Torah and the prophets to receive an explanation and understanding. Kind of like when Ezra's associates stood up and read the law and explained it to the people in Nehemiah 8, 8, and 9. And so that's how you would come to understand things of God and, and the intermediaries that were in, in, in the middle of it all. Now, when it comes to the presence of Yahweh, from the days of Moses until the destruction of the first temple, the people of Israel maintained confidence in Yahweh's presence among them that he manifested his presence as the cloud of glory that fills first the tabernacle, and then after the invocation of Solomon, the temple in Jerusalem, according to Exodus chapter 40 and 1 Kings chapter 9. Now, maybe very few Israelites, if any, would imagine that the only place Yahweh was was in the tabernacle or the temple. But they understood that Yahweh dwelled there in a special way that was not true of the other places. 
And that's why all the Psalms will talk about Yahweh dwelling on Zion. That is why if the Israelites needed to stand before Yahweh, either because uh, it was commanded of them at various festival times or for some other reason, they would go to where the tabernacle was or to Jerusalem to the temple. And they were the only places that you could offer sacrifices appropriately because that is the place where Yahweh caused his name to dwell. And that is why the temples that were built by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and Dan and Bethel, uh, led the northern kingdom into persistent sin because Yahweh never established his presence there. And this also leads to this overconfidence of the Judites in the days of Jeremiah in the defense against Babylon. Well, because the temple of Yahweh was on Zion, and Yahweh would surely, uh, being the inhabitant on Zion, not allow uh, the Babylonians to get glory over him. After all, the Assyrians tried to get glory over him, and we saw what happened to the Assyrians, right? That was why they cried out the temple of, the, uh, of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh in Jeremiah chapter 7. And this is why we can imagine Ezekiel would have shuddered in horror when he was granted to see a vision of the glory of Yahweh leaving that temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. It meant that he no longer maintained his presence in Zion, and thus it would not be long before it could be trampled over by foreigners. And that is also why there is this bitter lament over the humiliation of Zion and the degradation of the house of God and lamentations in other places. Now, the hope of the return of Yahweh's presence to the land of Israel was nourished by Ezekiel's temple visions in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And when exiled Israel's returned to their land in 539, they completed the second temple in 515, according to Ezra. The sacrifices were offered there by Levites. There was a high priest who officiated, and all relevant incense and offerings were provided. But it wasn't the situation Ezekiel had envisioned in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And as far as we can tell, uh, the presence of Yahweh did not return to Israel as expected. The most holy place of the second temple was never suffused with the cloud of Yahweh's glory. It sat empty. And that's how we can understand how Israel might have a crisis of faith during that second temple period and how Joel's prophecy might encourage. Because after all, where was Yahweh? His glory had departed the first temple in the days of Ezekiel. A second temple was built, but was never considered the temple that Ezekiel saw, and Yahweh's glory never came upon it. And where was Yahweh's spirit? Because toward the end of the 5th century BC, the spirit ceased to come to various chosen individuals, and the land would go without prophets for about 400 years. So if Joel had prophesied in the days of the Davidic monarchy, Israel could look forward to the ultimate redemption and pouring out of... Uh, the spirit upon all God's people, not just a select few. And that would be a very sweet promise for the Israelites of the second temple period. Uh, but just the hope of the return of the spirit would have provided them great refreshment and would have encouraged them greatly. And so as we can see, there's a lot of promises uh, going on here and a lot of hope being extended regarding the spirit and what the spirit would do. And as we already have said, there's a lot of promises that were made surrounding Jesus about baptism and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself made very specific promises about the Spirit in terms of him being in Greek the parakletos, which is translated the comforter or the advocate, or sometimes just transliterated into the paraclete. And these are specifically made to the disciples in John chapters 14 through 16. In John 14, Jesus encouraged his disciples, as he was about to die, to understand that they would do greater things than he did, because he would ask the Father, and the Father would send the paraclete to them, who was the Spirit of truth, and he would reside in and with them forever. 
and that Jesus would not leave them as orphans, but would come to them. Later in the chapter, that the Father would send the paraclete to them, would bring to their memory all that he had taught them. In John 15, the paraclete would testify about Jesus, and the disciples would also testify about Jesus. And in chapter 16, that it was more advantageous for Jesus to leave, so the paraclete could come. And he would not come unless Jesus departed, and he would convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit of truth would come to them and explain to them things that they could not bear at that present moment. And the Spirit would glorify Jesus and give all things to them. And all these are the things that would begin to find their fulfillment when the Spirit is poured out on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Yet even as noted in the prophecy of Joel and throughout the New Testament, the Spirit, as a paraclete, was not merely for the apostles. Yes, Peter explains this is what was prophesied. And then he goes through in Acts chapter 2 and would explain to them that it's all come about because God uh, had raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and he ascended to the Father and now reigns as Lord, and that when they asked him what they should do about this, you know, he told them to repent, let each of them be baptized, and then they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and this promise was to them, to their children, and to those far off, all whom God would call to himself in Jesus. And then in chapter 5 and verse 32, when he stands before the Sanhedrin, he declares that the Spirit also bore witness to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that the Spirit is given to all who obey God. So Peter expected that this fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel would go beyond himself and the other eleven and involve the Spirit coming upon all believers. And Paul is the one who would cultivate and develop a more thoroughgoing explanation of the Spirit and believers, and demonstrating how all that Joel had spoken would come to pass. Because for Paul, the Spirit is the arabon, which is the earnest or down payment of salvation that is given to Christians. And he affirms this in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 and Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. To Paul, Christians, individually and collective, are the temple of God that God's presence among them is his spirit in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 and Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. And thus Christians are envisioned as living and walking according to the spirit, manifesting the fruit of the spirit in Romans 8, Galatians 5. The spirit would pray for believers with groanings too deep for words in Romans 8, 26 through 27. And there's many other things that we could talk about regarding the spirit that the apostles discuss, but these show us how... Everything spoken by Joel found its fulfillment. Because God's presence returned to Israel. It did indeed. As Jesus of Nazareth, as Emmanuel, God with us. He is fully God and fully man. He dwelt among God's people. He entered the temple. He lived among them, served among them, ministered among them, and was killed by them. That Jesus himself in John 4 to the Samaritan woman envisions a future where God's people aren't going to a particular mountain. There's no particular edifice that is the center of God's presence among mankind. And we have to grapple with how it was better for Jesus to leave because the Spirit was poured out on the apostles, and they, with authority and witness, proclaimed the gospel around the Roman world. But the Spirit would also come to believers in Christ as part of the prophecy and the promise. The Spirit is the presence of God in and among believers, 
both individually and corporately. And so the Spirit is God with us, in us, and through us, working to accomplish God's purposes through his people. And that's the reason why the Spirit has been given to all sorts of people and is not limited to a select few. And this way, God's presence is not focused or centered on any one geographic location or edifice, but is found in and among his people. So what does this mean for us? Well, we have often struggled in coming to grips with the role of the Spirit in the faith and practice of the believer. A big part of this is because we have inherited an information transfer emphasis, which could not often imagine what the Spirit might be able to do for the modern believer. In Calvinism and Pentecostalism, there is an overemphasis on the work of the Spirit in salvation and the presence and maintenance of the charismata, the this particular spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues, prophecy, things of that nature. And in Jude 1 and verse 3, Jude assures us that the faith has been delivered once for all the saints. And so, uh, for many people in the past, the Spirit was understood according to his work in revealing information. And if the information has already been revealed, What benefit could the Spirit provide? And if we look at it primarily in terms of information transfer, and if we look at the work of the Spirit primarily in terms of information transfer, that's a very understandable concern. And argumentation would then center around how the Spirit directed the apostles, with the gift of prophecy and speaking in tongues ceasing after the apostles and their generation, it was easy to to suggest that the gifts of the Spirit himself thus ceased. And in fact, there are many to this day who have taken in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, the specific things Paul talked about and from them have extrapolated that in fact all the gifts of the Spirit have thus ceased. And all of Christendom has really had to grapple with which aspects of the promises of the Spirit were directed specifically to the Twelve, those that might manifest primarily in this first century, and those that might endure. And when it comes to this conversation, there's going to be maximalists on both ends. Those who think the Spirit works for everyone, all time, the way he worked among the apostles, and those who do not believe the Spirit has been active in much of anything since around the year 100. But the rest of us are trying to make holistic sense of the differences that do exist between the apostles and believers. So, for instance, one of the things that Jesus promised the twelve in John fourteen twenty five through 26 is that the Spirit would bring to their mind the things that they saw Jesus teach and do. And this is something that cannot be shared beyond them because we were not in-person witnesses of what Jesus did. And so that is a promise specifically to the twelve. It's something that cannot be transmitted beyond the, those who were present and saw Jesus do what Jesus did. Now, Peter's promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, was explicitly considered beyond that present generation that he's speaking to. Uh, The Spirit was also given to those who obey God, and that was not qualified or limited to a specific time in Acts 2 and Acts 5. So because of this, and this grappling that we are doing, what should believers make of the promises made about the Spirit and and their lives as Christians? Well, as we've seen in the witness of the apostles and the prophets, the Spirit is the presence of God within and among us. That we do not go to a place to be in the presence of God the way Israel would have to go to Jerusalem. Instead, we find God's presence in and among us, individually and collectively. As Joel prophesied, the Spirit is poured out on all of God's people in Christ. He's not only given to a select few. And Christians, individually and corporately, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if that metaphor is going to have any power, 
because the idea of the metaphor is that if it's the temple of the Holy Spirit, a uh, temple is a place in which a deity dwells or a manifestation of the deity dwells. If that is going to have any sense that we are a temple in any way, shape, or form, there needs to be some manifestation of the presence of deity among us, and Paul says that is by means of the Spirit. There needs to be some substantive reality of the Spirit's presence in the life of believers. Uh, concerns about a literal indwelling or our legion, but that phrase and what it might mean is very difficult to understand. Uh, literal is a concept in terms of uh, literal or figurative, uh, perhaps one can speak more abstractly or concretely. Uh, what the concrete manifestation of the Spirit would be some kind of spiritual thing that would be beyond our perception anyway. Uh, concerns about how the Spirit could be distributed among so many people uh, is an interesting question, something well beyond our understanding, uh, but a real issue for anyone anyway, considering in Acts chapter 2, we are told that he was distributed among 12 people. And if we can believe he, who is uh, God can be distributed among 12 people. Uh, the reason why he couldn't be distributed among millions of people, it just becomes a question of mathematics. So there are these issues and challenges, things we're grappling with, but we need to remember that the Spirit as God's presence is not an insignificant matter. Because there are a lot of barriers and distance that were set up between Yahweh and the Israelites. You know, if you are a, an average Israelite, quote-unquote, uh, it, you were to believe in God and to follow his commandments. If you were to have to offer an offering, you would not be able to go directly before Yahweh. You would have to come and bring an animal, and the priest would take the animal and bring it near to God. Uh, that you could bring a peace offering and eat it before Yahweh in the tabernacle area or the temple area, but even then, there would be many uh, points of remove. Uh, if you were a male, you could get as close as possible in the temple courts, for instance, but even then, there was at least two courts between you and the actual presence of Yahweh. And those are the places where the priests would go in the holy place, and the high priest would only go once a year in the most holy place. And it was a, a place of terror as much as a place of comfort because of the great concerns about what might happen to you if you are in that presence and if you do anything uh, slightly wrong. And if you wanted to understand things, you always had this intermediary. You either had a priest, you had a prophet, you had a lawyer or some kind of explicator. You always had somebody in between. In Jesus, though, God has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And he could be experienced, he could be touched, he could be seen, he could be heard. And Jesus declared it would be better for him to leave so the paraclete, the spirit, might come. And very interesting, Jesus, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Which you can see in the resurrection, but then he leaves them again after 40 days. It is best to understand that when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, that he's talking about his presence among them through his spirit. So how can it be better for the spirit to be among us than Jesus himself? And what does it mean for Jesus to not have left us as orphans? Uh, and that's why Christians are to maintain assurance in the Spirit. That God is with us in a much more profound way than he was among Israel. That God has not left us as orphans. We are not abandoned out here on our own. That the Spirit has been given as the down payment of salvation. Uh, the idea is his presence is by no means the fullness of the fulfillment of the promise. 
but it gives us assurance in our hope. We don't even pray as we should, Paul says, but the Spirit prays for us in Romans 8. And what does it say among us? When so many struggle to maintain faith, to believe God exists and is there, even though so many have a lot of great and deep biblical knowledge. And it really demonstrates the limitations of the faith as information transfer approach, because to know of God and Christ cannot be a mere endeavor of intellectual acquisition, but a cultivation of a relationship. And we as Christians are to experience that assurance. Now in John 3 and verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows as it will, and thus it goes to the Spirit and those led by the Spirit. And so to be able to pin down things, which is what we really want to do, is very difficult. The Spirit bears witness through the Word, and He will not contradict Himself. But if Christians are going to grow in their faith, they need to open their hearts and minds to the Spirit and to do the work He may be doing. He acts out of love. He's not going to compel or coerce or force himself on anyone. Is every thought which passes through our minds only from our conscious or subconscious? However we might understand how Satan might tempt us in our minds, can we find space to hear the prompting of the Spirit there as well? In Ephesians 3.16 and 17, uh, Paul prays that God would strengthen them in their inner man through the Spirit. It's one of those interesting things, right, that we recognize that we are not going to be able to endure by our own strength alone, right? And Paul makes this prayer. Should we not be praying to God that he would provide uh, the strength through his spirit into our inner person? Have there been times we have received infusions of strength and maybe we're not cognizant of how it was from the spirit? Now, the presence of the spirit is not about some kind of feeling or some kind of emotion. But it doesn't mean that the Spirit has nothing to do with emotions or feelings. Now, yes, there are some people who may go to what seem to be ridiculous lengths of what they think God is doing in their lives. That that the providence of God and God's Spirit has led them to get a certain parking space or to be able to uh, go to this place or that place or this or that. Uh, But when we look at that and if we prove dismissive about it, maybe we have become also in our own way too minimalist about God's work and presence in our lives and that we have instead presumed and acted as if it is only us involved in all the decisions and everything that we do, and give no glory to God, and do not give space for how God might be working in and through our lives. And it's only when we cultivate an openness to the Spirit that we can begin to experience life in the faith according to the Spirit, which will again never abandon or contradict the witness of the Word, but goes beyond simple information acquisition. We, as Christians, are the recipients of the promises that Joel made to Israel. God has poured out his Spirit upon his people. We may not be eyewitnesses to Jesus. We have not been given the authority of the apostles, and the Spirit does not provide the same gifts as he did in the first century. But the hope of Israel was to be filled with the Spirit of God and to be in his presence. And the Spirit is the presence of God in and among us. The Spirit is the great assurance of the Christian, because Jesus did not leave us as orphans, that God has given us of his Spirit as a down payment of our salvation. If we think of Christianity purely in terms of intellectual inquiry and exploration, we have a very impoverished faith that will lead to shipwreck and crisis for many. Information acquisition is important, but it's to an end. It has a purpose to live according to what God has made known in Jesus and that life and faith in Jesus needs to be empowered and directed by the Spirit. 
And it's the Spirit who invites us all to share in life and God in Christ. And for us to submit to God in our weakness so that God can strengthen us in Him. This leads us to our question, how may Christians live boldly in faith by the assurance of the Spirit? We'd love to hear your thoughts about this and everything we've talked about. Please let us know in the comments and subscribe to us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful, Father, for your love and care, provision, concern for us, uh, that you have created all things, that you have given us all things that we are able to enjoy. We are thankful for Jesus and for the redemption we have in him and the hope we, we cherish of the resurrection. And we're very thankful, Father, that you have given of your spirit, that you have given uh, the spirit as a down payment of our salvation, that we can have uh, the assurance that you have not abandoned or left us, that you have maintained your presence in and among us through your spirit. And that's through him we have received the word and can learn of these things. We have one another and many other blessings. We're mindful of all who are ill. We pray that you would heal them, that you would comfort and strengthen and sustain those who are in distress, grief, pain, and who are mourning. We pray that you provide for those in need and preserve life where it is in danger. We pray for all people, especially those in authority, that we can live peacefully and in tranquility and seek to serve you in all things. We pray, Father, for an openness to the promptings of your Spirit in us. We pray that you would give us the wisdom and insights to learn how we can live lives full of faith and and empowered and strengthened uh, through your Spirit. We pray that you would provide for us the strength uh, in our inner man through your Spirit that we can endure all things and overcome all things in you. We humbly confess that we are weak in ourselves and are frail and, and easily led astray. And we pray that you would strengthen us and direct us to follow the, uh, the, the, the voice of the Spirit, to continually find ourselves in you, to glorify you and honor you, to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, that we can become more like your Son, grow in relationship with you in Jesus through the Spirit, and share with uh, you eternal life, the glory that you will give to us. We earnestly look forward to the return of Jesus to enjoy that life, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us. If we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at venturechurchofchrist.org. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.